This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing a paper published in HS Scholar entitled Development and Retention of Early Career Clinician Scientists Through a Novel Peer Mentorship Program, MICRU. We will be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Villianti, the author of the paper. Dr. Villianti, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Could you introduce yourself to the, our audience? Yes, so my name is Dr. Elizabeth Villianti. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan and also have a dual appointment at the Ann Arbor VA. You describe in your paper the, the creation and maintenance of a, a, a peer mentorship program that you call MyCrew. And, and why, in your opinion, isn't the traditional senior mentor, junior mentee, DIAD enough to address mentee needs and ensure success? What, what aspects of peer mentoring make it so important? Oh, that's a great question. So I, I think you need a dyad for sure. You need a senior mentor and a mentee relationship to kind of navigate the academic landscape. But perhaps like many others, the senior mentors can be really busy because they have so many other responsibilities and perhaps so many other mentees that their time is precious. And as I was beginning at the very least, I had a lot of questions from like the very practical things of like, how does one get this computer program? Or should I attend this like one thing that's going on within my institution, never mind like nationally and internationally, that you don't feel like, or perhaps me, that it's appropriate to ask your senior mentor. And I think that's where peer mentorship can actually really help navigate one's career early on where you have people that are close to your level who may have just gone through the exact same thing, navigated it easily, or made mistakes and are willing to share those mistakes so you don't repeat them. So peer mentorship has its own unique niche that I think helps a lot of early career fellows, early career faculty that the senior mentors may have forgotten all about. And it provides you a venue of support for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, 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 I agree with you. And it's particularly important, for example, in, in low resource settings. So in Brazil, the, the senior mentor, junior mentee, Diad is, is, has even bigger challenges. So it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned that the, 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 you wanted the program or the, the, the peer mentoring program to be distinguished from just a group of trainees socializing or providing formal support. And, and that makes sense to me. Why, why was this important to you? And, and how was this distinction established in my crew? Yeah, thank you. I think we had a lot of discussions of like how we phrased that one sentence. Because I think, you know, you, you have colleagues and you have friends and we want there to be a collaborative, friendly environment. But we don't want it where it ends up not being beneficial for everyone. So getting around and having social events, we do that, but that's at a separate time. This is all done within the business hours to try to make people as effective with their time because we all have tons of things going on with kids or partners or whatnot. So one of the things we did 
to quote unquote formalize it is that it's actually scheduled and there's accountability rounds that are held at the beginning of each meeting. And this is to kind of set the tone of like, hey, we're here. This is what you said you would accomplish within the last two weeks. How did you do? How did it go? And what do you want to accomplish in the next two weeks? The other thing is there's a formal mechanism. So it's not that anyone can come. It's not like grab a friend and pull them into the meeting. We did end up developing a, a application process for this for this group. And in part, it was to ensure that the research goals all align, meaning we have diversity of thought from the different fields that are present in the peer group mentoring meeting. But we didn't want it so much so that if I had a colleague that did really basic science that I clearly have no concept of even the most basic of what they're doing, it would be hard to give them constructive feedback on that, which the whole point is to build you know, peer mentorship, but also to provide constructive feedback that will help make their work better. And if the group as a whole doesn't have the experience and the knowledge base, then it probably wouldn't benefit the other member. And that's just not fair. That, that would be a time suck for them. So we have narrowed it down a little bit in terms of who's allowed to come into the peer mentoring group. But in terms of making it formal, it is the application process. It is the time setting process. It's the agenda that's set up. It's the fact that people need to sign up to share work. So we have pre-assigned presenters to kind of make it structured in a way. And yes, we do have social get-togethers on the side. You've mentioned that you have very broad eligibility criteria to, to, to select members to my crew. But one of the one of the criteria is having a senior mentor. Can you tell us if you if you had to reject applicants because of this criteria at any point and why you thought this was important? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I'll start with the last part first. We've never rejected anyone because they did not have a senior mentor. Everyone has always had a senior mentor. We've declined people for other reasons, either their research interests didn't align or they didn't have the time commitment to be able to participate fully in my crew or their senior mentor didn't allow for them to actually join my crew. So it's been a rare occasion to be quite honest, but the reason why we didn't, we felt senior mentors would be really important is because that didactic relationship is still super important. Mentors provide additional insights that even though we as peer mentors think we know everything possible, we clearly don't, we're still learning. And the senior mentors can provide guidance and insights that we just don't have. I think the other part is, is that there's also the component of like sponsorship from a mentor that you can get, which I think we've all learned is really important within academic medicine. And so there are things that even as peer mentors will never be able to replace. And that relationship of that dyad is still really important. We're just hoping to build additional support mechanisms for early career faculty in order to help promote them and keep them in academic medicine. Okay, thanks. That, that's very clear. The meeting started with accountability rounds, as you call it, right? Where members set two research goals to be achieved by the next meeting and review what they, what they said were their two goals in the previous meeting. I, I wonder if members felt anxious to report unmet goals and, and what strategies did you develop as a group to avoid feelings of failure or guilt, for example? Oh, that's great. I think the first meeting I went to was one of those like, ah, I didn't do anything, but I think that's par for the norm. What we try to do is set the expectation and set the examples. So I am guilty of often 
not often, I won't say often, but sometimes not meeting the goals that I set out. And that's intentional because we do have earlier career faculty. And I want them to know that sometimes you set out goals and you just can't reach them because life happens. Your kid ends up in the emergency department, you end up with COVID, life happens and that's okay. The big thing is figuring out ways to overcome whatever has happened. And so one of the strategies we do set out, and some, some of our members are phenomenal at like having very specific plans that they're going to accomplish within two weeks. So instead of saying, I'm gonna write an entire manuscript in two weeks, well, that's not reality. It's the, I'm going to write the analytical plan in the next two weeks. I'm gonna do table one in the next two weeks. And I think that starts to help set the precedent for our earlier members of like, okay, this is how you start to write a manuscript. It's not that you sit at a computer and you write the entire thing from title to like references, it's you break it down piece by piece. I do think we're a welcoming group, which probably helps. We have a lot of warm, welcoming, early career faculty that are there to support. And so no one is too judgmental where you get the look of scorn of like, how dare you not accomplish what you said you were going to accomplish? But more of a question of like, why, what happened and what can we help you with? Like, is it something that you've come across and maybe one of us has already come across that, that we can tell you like, oh, this is how we did it. Maybe you want to try that in order to help them be able to accomplish whatever their goals are. But you're, you are right. There is a bit of like, oh, shame face, but hopefully that shaming, if people do feel it is also the motivator to like continue to like find the energy to overcome whatever hurdles are coming to be able to move forward in academic medicine, because it's nothing but hurdles sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. We're a group of very self-demanding professionals, right? So it's great that you were able to create a, a, an environment where it's okay to not meet those goals. And, and, I, and I, I agree, and you say it in another part of the manuscript, that one of the goals was to teach people how to break, like, instead of saying, I'm going to write the whole manuscript, how do you break, like, big steps like that one into small manageable tasks then that I think that's an important skill and it, it looks like you were very efficient in in teaching the whole group and teaching yourselves how to do that oh I think it's an like I agree with you 100 it's an important skill but it's also when we have because we have fellows that come into our program second and third year fellows and I think the natural instinct when you run across an obstacle is to go to what you're really good at which is clinical medicine. It's just like, oh, that paper, mm, I'm just gonna, you know, oh, patient called, I'm gonna go respond to that call first and then I'll come back to the computer. And so it's also, I think, helping people become comfortable with the uncomfortable because it's a brand new skill set for so many of us of like, how do you actually do research? That's a million dollar question that I think I still struggle with at times. But if we can help people become comfortable with the uncomfortable and find ways of like, this is how you do things just like a central line. You do this step first, then you do this step first and you start making it algorithmic. That's also in some ways a secret sauce of like research. And can we foster that in a way that will keep them coming and not scare them away and not have them come back? Yeah, that's great. Another activity in the group was the presentation of working progress. And you say it happened at least twice a year for, for each of the members of the group and you got group feedback. I, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us more details of how that worked? And I have two specific questions about the sessions. Was the feedback offered during the meeting or was it afterwards? And, and, and how did 
how did you usually manage cases where there was conflicting feedback? Like one of the members says, I would, I don't, I don't know, I would change it, the research question, and somebody else says, no, I think it's good. <laughs> Conversation is always good, right? So works in progress, we have it so that there's no pre-work needed to be done before the meeting. And I say that because everyone's already busy and we don't want people to feel like they have homework before coming in. So the meeting kicks off with people either emailing. If we were in person, we have printed copies of whatever it is we're gonna review, whether that's an abstract, a table, a figure, an AIMS page for a grant. And then hopefully they're early so that people aren't set in stone. Like this is the way I'm going to do it. And therefore none of this is gonna be helpful which is something that we've been working on trying to communicate with our group that we don't want final products because then you really don't want to hear feedback. You just want to hear someone tell you, this is a five stars, two thumbs up, excellent work. We want it where it's early on and maybe you don't have everything polished and like finalized with your mentor. And so that's where comes, everyone gets a chance to read it. And then feedback comes depending on the stage of where they're at. So if it's really early, it may be like, does this idea make sense? Is this interesting? If it's further along, it's like, how do I pitch this better? How do I sell this better to the audience? What isn't clear? And generally there is an agreement, which is kind of funny. Like there is a lot of different opinions of, I think this sentence is crap. Oh, I think that sentence is key. I love this idea. I hate this idea. This isn't very clear, but it genuinely is said in the interest of trying to make the work better. What I have been told and what we try to remind everyone is that feedback is a gift. It may not be right, but if overwhelmingly your readers are telling you something isn't right, the, the way they fix it may not be the solution. The one thing to take away is whatever you wrote or whatever you're trying to present isn't clear enough. It's not clear enough that you have so much interest in so many comments that no one can make sense of it. How you fix it is probably not going to be any of those ways. It may, but it may be something for you to think about more and then talk to your senior mentor about of like, hey, this is what happened to my crew. I presented it. 12 different people read it 12 different ways. None of them were the way we thought they were going to interpret it. So how this is what I've been thinking. What do you think? So rarely do I think we're the final verdict, but we can highlight when things are not clear because you will get a lot of opinions from a lot of different members. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. On, on table two, you highlight the academic outcomes of the members, which are remarkable. Can you tell the audience a little bit about it and 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 let us know, is this... I mean, it's really remarkable, very good outcomes. Is this different? Do you, do you have any comparison within the University of Michigan or that we would, we would say this is uh, above average or, and, and is this above expectations from the group? So table two is our, where our current members are, our former members are, and then our graduate members are of my crew. And I was just thinking, I don't know of any early career health services group within the university, to be honest with you. This was a unique organization or group that was started. I didn't start it actually. So Dr. Hallie Prescott started this group in conjunction with Dr. Colin Cook. And so I was fortunate to be a fellow when all of this emerged and meandered my way into the group, but it is a longest standing group. There have been other peer mentoring groups that have emerged with different formats within the institution. They have all 
dwindled over the years. I think we're unique because we are essentially a peer mentoring group who, while the majority of us are within the division of pulmonary critical care, that's not the only group of members. And the senior members that have graduated have really emphasized to their mentees to join this group. So there is a natural filling process within my crew and a belief that it actually is helping make people's work better. I think we're lucky. We, we have been, we've had the right individuals, the right senior mentors, the right people that have graduated that in a way self-select to be a part of this group that is a reflection of like why our numbers are so good. I have benefited from all of them. There is, there is something to be said of like, you see it done well and you learn and then you continue to do it that way and it, success begets success in a way. But I do think we're unique within the University of Michigan. I think our record is on an outlier in some ways that it is higher success rates than I think anticipated for most peer mentoring groups. But I do think we do self-select in a way. And as I mentioned, like the senior mentorship that has graduated that were former members continue to support the group unto itself, which likely continues to bring us successful candidates through. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable outcome. And I, I, I see what, what you're saying when you say you were lucky. I will respectfully disagree in the sense that it, it will look like it was chance and it was certainly not, but it's a it's a unique opportunity and I get it, especially when you tell us that you started when you were a fellow. I mean, having the opportunity, but fostered something you had in, your, in yourself. So I, I, I was really impressed to see those numbers and I, I think it's great. And I, and I hope that lots of people will be inspired to pursue something like that, seeing what, you, what an amazing results you had. I think it's investment, right? Like you have to have people that are willing to make the investment, both from like a senior mentorship perspective, from senior peers, the relationships that I've developed. And I think others too, where it's just like, I wasn't doing something that I probably should have done that would help me with my career. One of the senior mentors is like, hey, you, what are you doing? Like, you need to do this. And I'm like, I do? Yeah, this is what you need to do to like keep moving, like get this done. <laughs> it's like, oh, no one told me that I needed to do that. Yeah, of course you need to do that. It's a lot of making the invisible rules and the invisible pathways visible and the resources that come with it. So there is something about investment within our members. Like I'm very invested in making sure early career fellows have the support that they need. That if it, they need to see what a loan repayment program application looks like that have succeeded, like here's a list of them. Find out where yours fits and then model it so that you know how to like move it forward. And similarly for scientific symposiums at ATS, which you start to see, this is how they get put together. This is the process to hopefully help you become more successful in it. And here's a podcast, because I think there's a podcast on ATS symposiums and whatnot, that you make all these things that are out there, you kind of funnel out the junk that they don't really need and hopefully funnel them the information that is beneficial to them. You mentioned that despite critical care being a male-dominated field, half of the team members are women. And it, you also say that peer mentoring mentorship can provide an opportunity for women and other underrepresented individuals to find support and guidance. Did you encourage gender balance in the group or was it a natural result of 
self-selection and and did you have to at any point you were you had to choose between applicants to maintain the, the 20 member cap did you use gender as one of the criteria to choose members or not really no so we've never had to select between members we we have been fortunate in that there's always the right exodus going out as a new new group comes in so we've never been pressured in that way the gender diversity, I think, has come through a natural process that we have just benefited from. So when I first started, there were two women in the group total, and that has slowly grown. Part of the growth is in bringing in other areas of medicine, but our fellowship group as a whole has also become more female dominant. And so as a result, the earlier people that are coming in are also female which kind of helps to bring out some of the gender balance because pulmonary critical care as a whole is generally male dominated in the adult side, not so much in the PEDS side. So we do have some PEDS critical care people that have joined us since. And I think bringing in nursing has certainly helped us bring in more women as well. But we've been, we have benefited generally from a, a wave that has changed within who's coming into Michigan for sure. You do acknowledge in the manuscript that it's not possible to establish a, a, a cause effect a relationship of the impact of the micro program and the success in retention and outcomes of the members, such, such as awards received, since members, of course, self select, select to the group. But, but you also had a survey uh, sent to members and ex-members, I think, that showed the members are really satisfied with the results and they, that they feel that the program had an impact in their, in their careers. So are you, do you still think you needed to, are you thinking about doing any other kind of analysis or is this evident enough for you as a group that the, that the program has an impact in academic careers at the University of Michigan and, and you would continue with the program because this is enough evidence that it, it makes a difference. Yeah, I wish I could say this was all causally linked, right? Like we are the reason everyone is successful, but that's, that's clearly not true. I think we help play a role, but successful people will probably be successful regardless of us. They will find ways of overcoming. You know, I think the survey that we did, it was reassuring to know that people found it beneficial. It's one of those things that you assume everyone's going to say, like, this has been the best thing since sliced bread. But it was good to actually hear that many members found it to help benefit their academic careers in different ways and that they overall found it to be a supportive environment and welcoming of feedback. We were never... I guess, looking to ensure that it was always going to lead to academic success. Part of it is, is a selfish reason. I think for some of us, it's you build a network of friends that you find ways of collaborating with and learning with as you move through the ranks. And if we are successful, fantastic. But I would continue to work with them, even if the survey had said that this group was like the worst thing ever, because I really appreciate and admire many of my colleagues. Like I often am surprised at how well they're doing. And I'm like, I'm so glad that my name can be tagged to them in some way, shape or form. The survey unto itself was actually helpful in how we're revamping this next academic year in terms of going more towards a hybrid format because the last two and a half years have been so challenging with COVID and COVID restrictions here. Finding ways of encouraging that really early work 
that some of my early members were like, well, we didn't want to present because we only wanted to show you the manuscript that was accepted. And it's like, no, well, then I, my feedback is useless because it's accepted. Like, that doesn't do you any good. I really want to see the early work. Like, that's what we want to see. And so finding ways of driving home that this is who we are. We are early career. We are not established associate full professors that our growth and our benefit come from learning from each other. Not everyone has the answers. And so some of the feedback that we received was helpful in like re-engaging the, the group that we have now. We are earlier in career than we have been in prior years. As the group kind of migrates up over the years, people will graduate. And that first wave all tended to graduate more or less together. So we brought in a brand new group of second and third year fellows and first year, second year faculty members. And so we are starting all over again of trying to build everyone up. And this survey, I think, gives me hope. The results at least give me hope that we can continue to be successful in reaching other people's goals as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I think you show a lot of success metrics and numeric ones, like how many awards or how many people got promoted, but also, and you mentioned that in the manuscript, the fact that the group has, has had, has, has survived COVID, right, has been sustainable when you, you have groups of new people coming in and graduations and showing, I, I, I agree with you that the the kind of subjective feedback in this particular case, I, I think it might be even more important than any, any numbers that would show any association between participating in the group and having uh, any objective success. Uh, so it, it makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying in terms of using the survey to well, to improve what's already very good, but also assure everyone that it's making a difference. Yeah, no, I appreciate your re rephrasing of it. I think you're right. I think the academic merits will come. Whether they come in the same frequency, I don't know, depends, depends on how things go. But for certain, if we can build the culture to support people so that when they do hit the roadblocks, which we all hit, it's either, you know, reviewer two that destroys you or the grant score that gets oh, so close to funding. But if we can continue to help foster people to stay within academics, right? Part of the whole group is to continue to build the diversity. There's so many women here now. Can we continue to keep them even as they hit these different roadblocks and support them? Whether that's just conversations on the side, whether that's knowing that others have gone through it too, you're not alone because the last two years in particular have been so isolating for so many people that I view that part as being just as important as like, can I keep them and keep them happy? Because this is why they came into academic medicine. And at the same time, will they get their funding? The two do go hand in hand. I'm not naive to say that you stay in academics and you can't, can't have grants to support yourself, but I do value both. And I think many of us do as well. Speaking of sustainability, you, you, I mean, this was particularly impressive considering that you had COVID and, and you mentioned other challenges. Can you tell us what were biggest challenges in your opinion? And, and if you expect this, the program to, be, to continue as, as the group completely rotates, for example, at some point, I don't know if that's, that's true yet, but as when you come to a point where no one in, in the group now is a member of the first cohort. Yeah, I don't think anyone 
think Andy and myself may be the only members from the original first cohort, Dr. Andrew, Andrew Admin. The rest have all grown into the group for sure. The biggest barrier, because so many of us were involved in critical care, I think was the, just the overall impact of the pandemic, both clinically, mentally, emotionally, and then geographic isolation took a toll for the last two and a half years. I think the ability of Zoom has certainly helped. I mean, I get to talk to you and you're in Brazil. So, you know, like that has certainly helped with the camera aspect of like, you can see each other, you can talk to each other. And some of our meetings were not academic over the last two and a half years. They were simply a like, how's everyone doing? How's everyone hanging out? Like, is everyone doing okay? Because we can't see each other physically. We cannot see each other in any way, shape or form. So I think that was part of the big challenge that we dealt with in the last two and a half years. As we emerge from COVID and try to come back to normality, whatever that is nowadays, we have had to readjust. So part of that is the hybrid format that we are going to start. We had our first one last, last week, last week, where half of us were literally in person, the other half were on Zoom. And it worked great. Like the amount of enthusiasm that was present was, was amazing to see. We've also readjust, re, we've talked about our goals. Like this is the purpose of us. It, does that still align with everyone? Like if you don't want to totally find, no one's gonna haunt you down and be like, how dare you quit my crew? But we wanna make sure that it's truly a worth of your time because time is the only thing that we control. We discussed again, whether or not we would have our meetings on the same day every two weeks. Or do we need to adjust? Because as COVID came through, there's more virtual meetings. There's a lot more Zoom meetings that still haven't gone away and other commitments have come up. And so we are going to be readjusting when we meet for the next academic year. I think we will continue to remain present and my crew will continue to evolve. How I see it now is different than when I first joined. And hopefully once I graduate, <laughs> cross my fingers that I get there, it will be different, but it needs to be different because the needs will be different of the members. But there's a long way before the next wave graduates. <laughs> so we'll, we'll be okay for a couple more years. But I do envision that it will continue to morph as the members' needs morph. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's so true at this point. I have a, a final question. You mentioned you had funds and staff support to help the project work to you. But now you also mentioned that you, I mean, now you, you're doing hybrid or maybe you could do this without having a room or you don't have to have pizza or cookies for the meetings. Do you think, <laughs> do you think that this program could be implemented in a low resource setting? Like if I wanted to do this here in Brazil, do you think having the funds and staff is absolutely crucial or could we get around that as long as we had motivation to do it? I think you can get around it to be 100% honest with you. So my crew, when it first started, did not have it. We didn't have an administrative assistant to kind of help keep us organized. In fact, Dr. Prescott was the one that used to keep us organized of like, all right, people, here's a meeting. This room's been reserved. And then finally, I don't remember what year it was that all of a sudden an administrative assistant became a part of this that would keep us organized and send out the email reminders of like, you signed up to present, don't forget. And here's your meeting room which has been for me a huge relief to like not have to stay on top of that. 
we did do Zoom, which was a lot easier. You didn't need an administrative assistant for that, but we continue to keep them engaged because it took another person to hold us accountable. So we would share the screen and you would see on the Excel file, the last time you were there, what did you say? And it was like, oh, oh well, I, someone's keeping me honest. As we move forward, I think the biggest part that the administrative assistant has played is just ensuring that the room is reserved. The Zoom, link, the Zoom link is done. We now do signups on Google Docs. So everyone can see the Google Doc and just quickly put their names in the location of where it's located. We are too poor, so we don't have cookies or pizza or soda or coffee. <laughs> you come with whatever you pick up on your way in. And that's about all you need. You need a motivated group of individuals that want to work and help each other. The other stuff is just nice, nice frosting on top and some creative people that can come up with a Twitter handle and like a micro logo, but that's all member driven. So I think it can be done. I really do. I think it just comes down to, do people have the time to be able to commit? Do they care to help others, not just themselves? So part of this is self-giving of trying to ensure that other people, their work truly does improve and you're invested in their success. Are you willing to be vulnerable and share work without fear that someone's going to take it? or ridicule you if you like make a mistake and they're like, how could you ever think you would run that regression that way? It's like, oh, I don't know. And so it's building that environment that's a collaborative and truly a collaborative environment of people that really do want to do this together. And if you have senior support that says like, hey, this group truly does work and we think it's worth our early members joining it, all the more power to it. That's great. It's really inspiring. I, I hope to see in, in next year's a lot of micros becoming like a network of micros. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Then we could right? all have a big meeting of like, what's working? <laughs> what's not working? <laughs> Dr. Billy, and it was great having you here at Scholarly today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about our paper. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at hesjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.